0: man, we have a huge group over this way, so I'm going to have to be sure to uh, pan around. I didn't plan on that. Uh, it's funny. I was actually running through the sermon uh, yesterday, and I stood in the back over there, so this feels real weird uh, being up on this side, uh, but it's, it's all right. Uh, I hope everybody is uh, doing well uh, this morning. It's good to see everybody, uh, especially again on this holiday weekend. Uh, if you would, if you'd join me, uh, I'm going to open in prayer. Oh, Father, you are so good and so gracious, uh, what a joy it is to uh, spend time uh, with, with your scripture, what, what, what graciousness it is of you to, to, to give your word uh, to us, God, I pray that you would make it plain and known to us this morning, uh, I pray that uh, my words would be uh, your words, that you would speak uh, through me, uh, and we just I commit this time uh, to you, Jesus, it's in your name we pray, Amen. So we'll go ahead and get started uh, by reading. Uh, We're continuing uh, our series through 1 John, which we've started at the beginning of the summer and we will go throughout the length of the summer. Uh, So if you will, if you'll turn to the book of 1 John, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 18 down to uh, 27. I'll give you guys a second to to get there and then uh, I'll read it. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as, if you, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now, I don't know about you guys, uh, but when I open this text, Uh, And I read it, it's one of those to where if I were like doing a quiet time or a personal Bible study, I'd be like, ooh, man, uh, let's see what's happening on the other page. Uh, You just kind of keep on turning. And uh, at first glance, I feel like this text is one that's uh, kind of intimidating, right? John begins in his first, right here in this passage, he begins with children, it is the last hour. And for those of you who grew up uh, in the church, especially in traditions that uh, are talk about eschatology or end times a whole lot you know I kind of come to it with like this left behind Kirk Cameron baggage too so anytime I see like left I see like it is the last hour I'm like oh no how could I talk about this how are we going to preach about this I don't even know how, I'm feeling a little anxious about it. And then the next, he's like, then the, the Antichrist, Antichrist is here. And not only just one, but a whole bunch of them have already come, which like blows my mind because, you know, we go to it and we have this idea or this assumption about what it is because we've seen Left Behind or we've heard about Left Behind or we've had nightmares about Left Behind. Uh, but we, you know, we, n- not me, uh, no worries. Um. But but we come you know we kind of come to the text with our own set of of assumptions and I, and I think it's kind of it's, it's dangerous and it's unhelpful to understand you know it, the way that the ESV is uh, it, it translated I don't know if you know but the ESV is actually a word for word translation whereas like the NIV is like a, a phrase by phrase and then you have things like the the Message or NLT that are more like concept by concept. Uh, and so it's already, this passage is a little bit chunky and confusing just grammatically when you read it because of the way it is in the Greek. Um, and so the NIV, I even debated, I was like, man, should we read It's at least a little bit more plain. I mean, it doesn't mean that the concepts that are in here are any less intimidating, but at least, you know, the the grammar structure of it's not just like, man, I don't have a clue what he just read. Uh, but 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 it but, but it's good. So uh, I want us to do a couple things uh, together uh, this morning. One, I want to give just a brief kind of hermeneutics lesson, uh, which is just basically rules about how we study Scripture. Because you know when we bring to the table assumptions and we don't ask good questions of Scripture, we get out of Scripture what's actually not there. Uh, and so the first thing I want to do is just kind of go through what are some basic questions we can ask when we that we can ask when we approach the text. Uh, and I hope that you will begin asking if you don't already when you're studying Scripture uh, on your own. And because we can't, I mean, we have to actually unpack this text and preach this text. Uh, I can't, like, spend a whole lot of time there, so I'm just going to touch on it. But over there at the back table and then in the hospitality area or in the lobby, uh, I've printed out just basics of Bible study handouts. Uh, that you can look, and it talks about you know what what you know the danger in coming to the text with a whole lot of our own assumptions is that we do something called eisegesis, or, or we kind of bring to the text kind of our own assumptions and our own ideas, and then we try to draw from it and we take it and we try to apply it, but we we've kind of taken something that is not really actually there and tried to apply it, and it's just it kind of gets real gollywopped. Uh, and then sorry, that's a word my mom used. I didn't feel like it was awkward. <laughs> uh, it was just very natural. Um, parents, watch what you say. Um, the, the, so, so anyway, uh, those are there. So we're going to just unpack that for just a second. I, I would hope that you take one look at it. Uh, hopefully it helps your, your time uh, in the Word. Uh, the second thing uh, that I want to do is using those tools and kind of that context, I, I, I want to draw out or unpack what is actually in the text. It's what we would call exegesis, or we excavate what's actually in the text. Uh, And then the third thing is kind of through all of that in some way, shape, or form, uh, we're going to pull some application and implications uh, from it. So without further ado, uh, the first rule of good hermeneutics is to go to whatever you're going to, and I guess it's not even just hermeneutics, how we study the Bible, it's like any situation in general, is to ask yourself, hmm, what's actually going on here? Uh, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, if you're going to a nonfiction or fiction, or you're going, you're reading poetry or apocalyptic literature or a letter to someone, you always kind of want to go, "Hey, what's actually happening here? What, what is this? What's happening here?" Because, like I said, when we bring assumptions, assumptions are pretty dangerous. Uh, when I was doing this, it reminded me of a story a few years ago. Uh, some of you may remember. I don't know how many in here were. Uh, part of our missional community. But Casey and Lauren Payne had moved here, and Casey and I had become pretty good friends. Uh, But we hadn't hadn't built a whole lot of a relationship with Lauren. She was busy with work and some other things. Um, But they invited us over to their house for dinner. Uh, and it was the first time they invited us over uh, for dinner, and so, you know, we're kind of excited, you know, we're, uh, man, this is a cool opportunity, we're actually getting to know Lauren a little bit, this is great. Uh, so we go over to dinner, Casey makes some lovely pork chops on the grill, uh, we eat dinner, it's great, and then after dinner, Lauren asks, would you guys like some, some dessert? Well, be, of course we'd like dessert. You know, we're good Americans. Yes, we like dessert, please. Uh, so she gets up from the table. She walks over to the refrigerator. She opens it up and she pulls out this beautiful glass trifle dish. I think that's what you call it. Isn't that right? The clear dishes? Yeah. So she, bring, she, she takes it over to the counter. She doesn't even bring it to the table. And then she goes back to the fridge and pulls out some heavy whipping cream, kind of in a carton. And then she goes and makes this homemade whipped cream. Now this is good news for me. My mom not only said golly whopped, but we never had fake whipped cream. It was, there was no Cool Whip allowed. It was only real whipped cream. So I, I have a real affection for whipped cream. So I'm actually pretty excited at this point uh, that she's got this real whipped cream. Uh, and so she's, uh, sorry, in the trifle dish, I miss this, miss this part, it's key, uh, is like layers of what looks like chocolate mousse. Like dark chocolate, light chocolate, just different layers of mousse. And so she's making this whipped topping, this whipped cream to put on top of it. She makes it. Uh, And and as she's kind of finishing up, you know, again, you got to remember, I have two things going on in my mind. One, I absolutely loved real whipped cream. Cool whipped garbage. I'm sorry if that offends you. Uh, Two, two... This is the first time, like, we're there as a family, like, over in their house. They're hosting us, so, like, I'm not trying to be, like, weird or anything, but I'm trying to be, like, grateful and express gratitude and be thankful for hospitality. I mean, she's making homemade whipped cream, which is amazing. Uh, So I'm I'm wanting to express this gratitude or thankfulness. And so I open my mouth, uh, and I say, Lauren, this is great. Thank you uh, so much. I'm really excited about the dessert. uh, And I, I don't pause. I don't take a breath. I just keep going. And will, real whipped cream is so much better than Cool Whip. And, and then I don't pause there either to like wait for her response to kind of see what's actually going on. I just continue, <laughs> you got to remember what's in my mind. I said, you know, the stuff that you buy at the store is just gross. It's garbage. Cool Whip is terrible. It's a fake, sorry excuse for real whipped cream. It's full of chemicals. I don't even know that it actually has dairy in it. I, if you look at the ingredients list, it is pretty wild though. You should do that if you haven't. So Lauren waited for me to put my foot all the way in my mouth uh, before she responded or until I quit talking (laughs) and she responded. She says, well, you're probably really going to hate this dessert because all of the chocolate mousse is straight out of a Cool Whip can. (laughs) Context is important. Uh, A little awareness can be really, really helpful uh, in any situation, Uh, A little bit of asking, you know, maybe waiting for her to respond, asking a question, seeing what was going on would have been helpful. So uh, as we go to the text uh, this morning, especially a text like this, Uh, I I want us to do two things and I kind of look at them like lenses, you know, I I like to have have like a wide angle or like a panorama lens where I kind of step back from the scripture and I go, hey, what's going on here in light of the entire narrative or the meta-narrative, the overarching story of scripture, you know, creation, you know, fall, redemption, and then the restoration of all things. Uh, So that's the first thing that I like to go is like, hey, where is this actually falling within the the story arc of scripture? Uh, And John's letter here is, you know, it's in what theologians would call the the now but not yet, so to speak speak. The kingdom has come. Jesus has come. He's, he's lived his life, death. He's been buried. He's resurrected. He's ascended now to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit uh, to the church. But all things have not yet been uh, restored. All things, there, there's not the new creation uh, yet. So that's kind of like our, our place in the, the whole story arc. And then the second is kind of more of like a zoomed-in lens, and we're asking more like cultural questions, textual questions, what is this actually saying? What's John actually writing? And so we we start by asking just a couple simple questions. You know, what, what genre of literature is this? Because what genre of literature is this actually really matters. You know, what, what is, what's what's the, I guess the, the, the genre? And we know that you know John uh, is a letter, uh, and if it's a letter, who wrote it? John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation and Second John and Third John, the, the one who was with this uh, Jesus, who walked with Jesus. Uh, who is he writing it to? Uh, it's believed that he's writing it to a group of churches or the church in uh, Ephesus and then what's the purpose of the letter? Uh, What's he actually doing? Because if we isolate this one text and we pull it out and we bring our own assumptions I think it gets pretty uh, dicey because we're trying to interpret it kind of apart from its its context and what's been happening see is that John is still writing as he's been writing throughout the whole whole book in response to some false teaching from a particular group of people called the Gnostics Uh, and and more specifically, he's responding uh, to, to these three questions. And we saw it at the beginning of chapter 3. But the three questions, is, is, they're a little philosophical, but one, is God actually knowable? Can we know God? The second question that he's kind of responding to, or he's responding to, would be, that can we know that we actually know God? Can we know, do, can we have a consciousness or an awareness that we know God? So, one, is God knowable? Can we know God? And two, if we knew God, could we be aware that we knew God? And then the third is, okay, if so, how? And, and the, the answer to the first two questions are yes, uh, because in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, you know, we can know that we have come to know him, implying that yes, God is knowable. And yes, we can be aware, we can know that we actually do uh, know God. So throughout, the chapter, throughout chapter 2, uh, pretty much what's been happening is John has provided three tests to help us answer the question uh, of how can we know that we know God. Uh, the first test was at the beginning of chapter 2, and it was what we call the character test. Right? The first test uh, is really the character test. Is The way that we know that we're a Christian is that our character has changed. We've become in our behavior and our lifestyle more like Christ. We're following Christ's example. We desire to obey our, his commands, and this is coming out of an experience, a transformative experience with him. Uh, the second test he, he issues or gives is the love test, right? Uh, and it, this, he's not, not just talking about like temperamental kindness, like do you love your brother, uh, but, but a real genuine love that, is, that birthed out of a regenerate heart. Uh, not just nice, not just somebody who's nice, but somebody who's changing. Uh, and the way that we would know that that's not just temperamental and it's something that's actually from a, a reborn heart uh, would be that there's tremendous progress being made, uh, that you're considerably considerably more loving than you than you used to be. And so now we come to where we actually are. We come to the last of the three tests. So what, what were they? The first test was, does anybody remember? Sorry, I'm a teacher, and so I, you can respond. It's okay. The character test, right? The second one was love test, all right? And the third test, uh, we'll hit in just a second. Uh, so let's look back at the text, and I'm going to give you some running commentary as we look through uh, a few of these verses. Uh, and I will give you some running commentary. There are a few tangents. You just have to handle that. Um, very early even. So in verse 18, John starts out with children. Now This is the tangent already, see? Uh, I love john's address of the church uh, as children. I think something in our society that we miss is that people become objectified uh, in any sense. you know we, we talk about you know men sexually objecting or objectifying women, but in general, we as a culture and society objectify one another. We see one another as utility, what somebody can give us, what somebody can uh, provide us with and I love if you know about children and parents, that is not at all what that relationship is like. And so I just love, like, this affection John is writing with. It's just like children, like children, the ones that I love, that I care for, that I I want to serve. I I really like that. I've said that to Reggie all throughout, and he, he says it all throughout this book. So He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. John's saying, in this last hour, in this time that has just passed right now, Antichrist is coming. Now, if you read it in the ESV, is it weird? There's an article missing. There's something missing right there. He's just like, that Antichrist is coming. He's not saying the Antichrist. He's saying that Antichrist is coming. And an Antichrist, before we, again, if you've seen Left Behind, you have this whole imagination built around this. Literally, it just means one who is against Christ. So if we read it like that, in this time, the time that's just passed, and this makes sense because of how, what he's about to say, but he says, in this time that just passed, the Antichrist, the one who is an opponent of the Messiah, in fact, many Antichrist, many opponents of the Messiah have come, and then, and then he goes down, in 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Who is John talking about? John's saying that there was a group of people that were in the church, that were a part of the church. They were in us, they were with us, but they went out from us. And we're not just talking about physically. He's not just saying like they were hanging out with us and then they left from us and now we're mad at them. He's saying they were with us doctrinally. They were with us. They believed the truth. They were with us. They were a part of the truth. They claimed to be Christians. They looked like Christians, but they were actually false. They were counterfeit and they weren't Christians at all. And the evidence, do you see In the evidence, is that they didn't understand and grasp a doctrinal core. And what was it? Look down at verse 20 to 23. I love the way that Eugene Peterson summarizes this. He says, he summarizes it as John is saying, I haven't been writing this to tell you something that you don't know, but to confirm the truth that you do know and to remind you that the truth doesn't breed lies and to help you see that there is a liar and it's the one who denies that Jesus is the divine Christ. It's the one who believes they can actually have a part with the Father apart from the Son. A part of the Father apart from the Son. This is the third test. The first was character. The second one was love. And the third is doctrine. Whether or not they understand this doctrinal core that Jesus is the Christ. Now there's something about these three tests that I think is really valuable and significant. Because in, in a very pol- we we are in an extremely polarized culture and world, an either or, an extreme one way or the other, and it leaves a lot of people. Uh, I mean, it's just I don't know it, the, the binary reality of it is, is uh, pretty frustrating. And so, one of the things I really, really appreciate here about what John is writing is is he showing us something, or we at least see something really unique about Christianity here that I think that we can tend to forget or miss based on our our our, our Christian tradition, where we come from. And this thing that's unique is that Christianity is neither a right-brained, or that's right for you, right-brained or a left-brained religion. See, most philosophies, most religions, most people in general are typically one or the other, right? And what I mean about religions and Christianity is that most religions, or are, are, sorry, that some religions are, are very mystical, uh, they're mystical in the sense that they're not very, which, which means that they're not very interested in, in necessarily doctrine. The emphasis isn't on reason, logic, or understanding. It's not really about a system of thinking or belief so much, but the important thing is, is experience. Now hopefully it's not a surprise to us that John doesn't uh, dismiss this. He actually is affirming this along with the rest of Scripture, that Christianity is in fact experiential. That the Bible affirms experience, and it affirms experience as an experience of God or with God. John goes far, and, and this is what he's kind of doing in those first two tests. He, he's not saying that, you know, you're a Christian if you just do good things and if you love other people. He's saying that the, fir- the first two tests are really about, it, it's not, he's saying it's not so much about head knowledge, it's not so much about having the right theology or right de- doctrine only, But it's significant that you've had an experience with God, a real transformative experience with God that is producing a heart that desires obedience and that's growing in character. That we've had an experience with God where we're growing in love as we experience His love. So he, he, he's going through in the first two tests, he's, he's affirming these things, that a Christian isn't someone who just knows about God. Reggie talked about that. He, he talked about uh, Jonathan Edwards and kind of the, the metaphor with honey, right? But, but as someone who actually has sensed his presence. And, and that it doesn't matter, again, how well that you know the Bible or theology, if you've never sensed his love on your heart, his presence pressing down on your spirit, or that you're actually connected with him. But he doesn't leave it there. See, now he turns it to this other third test. He goes to the other side of things. And he says, and however however mystical Christianity is, it's actually way more than that because there is a doctrinal core. There's experience and doctrine. There's a doctrinal core. There are things in Christianity to be a Christian that you have to believe. There's truth that has to be recognized. There's a body of content. There are propositions. There's actual truth, real truth, hard truth, and facts that if you don't bow and submit to, then you're not a Christian. And I think this this text is particularly challenging. This concept or this idea. But I think the experience culturally for most of us, unless we're you know and steeped in kind of a, a reform tradition or, or a particular tradition that's like very cautious and and, and aware. You know. Uh, just cautious against the experience in general, I think probably most of us culturally come at it and we go, okay, you know, most people are cool with like, oh man, I'm spiritual. I have religious experience. But as soon as you start to try to define that and put sort of a limit or a doctrinal face on that, that that's where we kind of get a little bit of a resistance. Uh, and, and, and I think that's particularly challenging us here in the West, um, And it's not really so much uh, the content, even though the content is challenging. I think it's the nature of how we actually interact with and think about what truth is. See, there's really two different views of truth uh, right now. Uh, One is a biblical view. And the biblical view of truth says that truth is something that exists apart from us. And that when we encounter truth, when we engage truth, when we come into contact with truth, it actually changes us and it shapes us. And that that truth exists apart from us whether we believe it or not. The second view is the contemporary view. And this is the idea that truth is something that we can construct and truth is something that we can shape. That it maybe is something that, that, that's in us. It's, 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 it's malleable. It's changeable or is in some way based uh, on us. And it's no surprise what John is saying here and where he lands here, because John doesn't just say. And I think this is what's challenging to us. I mean, think about in your own context, uh, John. If John's writing this and he says, "You know what? The person who believes that Jesus isn't divine is not actually just you know misinformed. He's like, no, they're not just have a different opinion than you. He says they're liars. They're wrong." which is kind of a I don't know about you but I mean if you feel I, I don't know I kind of feel I don't know I'm maybe more culturally culturally I, I don't know ingrained than, I, than I'd like to be or think but even saying that I mean that's not just an opinion but it's wrong kind of feel you know you kind of feel that inner tension and 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 that's because that's because we don't we don't get something see when when the bible says to us uh, you know, it says to us to be that we're called to be meek. That Christians are to be humble. That they're to be gentle. That they're to be gracious. And so, it, at first, we're going, "Man, how can how can how does this square with this? With John saying that this is anti Christ, and they're not this is, isn't their opinion, and we respect their opinion. It's just different than ours." He's saying, "No, these people are wrong. They're actually liars. They're saying that Jesus wasn't divine, and that they're liars. They're wrong." So so how does the Bible's call to meekness square with this? And I think it's actually pretty simple. See, the Bible teaches that when it comes to me, when it comes to you, when it comes to us, our thoughts, our opinions, our ideas, our direction, we're supposed to say, you know what? Maybe you're right when somebody disagrees with us. We have a humility and graciousness to kind of hear, man, you know what? I do have a limited perspective. You're right. Socrates said it brilliantly. I know that I know nothing, right? I mean, I would hope that we all have an awareness of our limited ability to perceive truth or or, or even process it, much less perceive it, right? I would hope that we all have a limited... but, But what that then moves us into is to believing that, you know what, to claim that we know anything to be true is actually pretty arrogant, Right, Because if we know that we have a limited perspective and a limit, limited ability to process that perspective, then it really is, I mean, it, I mean uh, Socrates is right, it really is arrogant to believe that we know anything. Unless one with unlimited perspective and unlimited knowledge has made that truth revealed and known to us. If it's up to our ability to perceive it, then, then it come, it is a little bit arrogant to say, I you know what, I know everything about everything, which gives me the right to be the authority on this thing. But God has made that truth known, one with unlimited knowledge, unlimited perspective. It would be arrogant to to dismiss that. See the the Bible teaches us, like I said, when it comes to me and you. We're to, we're, we're to go, you know what, if somebody addresses something that they think is wrong, we're to go, you know what, maybe we should really entertain that and consider what they're actually saying. Or if it comes to second or third level doctrinal issues within the church, that the that, that churches have faithfully gone to scripture over over years, over and over again, and come up with different ideas about, and they're going faithfully. You know, when those sort of things, we're supposed to go, you know what, maybe it's right. But when it doesn't, when it comes to something that's at the center, at the core, an absolute core, which is what John is doing here, right? He's actually boiling down the gospel all the way down to its core, that when it comes to the core message to which all Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that's plain when we look at scripture, it actually requires uncompromising assertiveness. Absolute uncomprom- uncompromising assertiveness. And this is a pretty difficult thing to hold together for us. Meekness when it comes to us, absolute uncompromising assertiveness when it comes to the core truth. Because what ends up happening is, is we become really just dogmatic people in general. You know, we we have a hard time separating the two. And what ends up happening is we become dogmatic not just about that core doctrinal truth, we become dogmatic about everything. Our politics, the way that we approach our finances, the way that we raise our children, even the brand of toothpaste that we use, or the football teams we cheer for, or whipped cream. I like that. We need more of that. Limited amount, though. Only a little more. Or So we either become a dogmatic person about everything, or we become really wishy-washy about everything. We have a hard time really balancing the two. And, and here's why John is making this such a big deal. Because see, the Gnostics taught that there was a divine being that descended on Jesus at his baptism and left at his crucifixion. They taught that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man. And you go, well, I mean, that's just a different way to interpret what the scripture says about the spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism in the dove. It's just a matter of opinion and how we interpret this thing. Or when he says at his crucifixion, when he's on the cross, I give my spirit to you. And John saying, no, 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 no. This is, this is a big deal because, he, he, see, the, the Gnostics taught, like, like I said, that he wasn't God. Maybe he was a great teacher. He was a perfect candidate for this divine being to come to. He was a great prophet, a great teacher, maybe one with even God consciousness. I don't know, did any of those phrases sound familiar to you? but that he could not be God. Like I said, it sounds innocent. But John is saying here in this scripture that if you get rid of the deity of Christ, if you get rid of the core truth, what is essential, you have actually missed Christianity. It's not just a liberal form of Christianity. It's not another brand of Christianity. It's a whole other religion entirely. And he's saying this, this isn't actually a debatable thing. It requires uncompromising truth. It's an uncompromising truth, and it requires that we hold uh, hold to it. So, to be a Christian uh, is to have experienced God and to hold core truths, core doctrine about who He is—the essential core doctrines about who He is. So, if we're going, you know, what 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 are the evidence? What do these tests teach us? That's that's what those three tests actually teach us. Now. The other thing that John is dealing with, and this is probably my favorite part of the text, so I know we're kind of at that, that, you know, that last point uh, where you would say, hey, you know, hang with me. Uh, but th- this is probably the most exciting part of the whole text to me, because I think this is where it actually comes together and makes a whole lot of sense. Because the other thing John is dealing with is how the belief and experience actually comes about. The other thing that he's dealing with, and we're going to dive into, is how this belief, how this experience, how it actually comes about. So look, look at verse 27 with me. We'll read the first half of verse 27. In verse 27, John writes. All right, frame your mind. Remember where we are in the text. Think about it. He's writing, he says, But the anointing that you received from him, remember that same anointing that he talked about back in verse 20 at the beginning, but that anointing that you re, anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now before, before I, I explain this, I, I needed to, de- to deal with the distractor uh, first. I, does anybody else, when you read this, I don't know. When I read it, I have all sorts of questions. When I read scripture, I'm going, how could this be true? I don't really get how this works. Uh, but do you see what he says in verse 27? Those of you who've been anointed who've received him, the anointing that you received from him, it abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach from you. Now, this sounds kind of crazy. This is coming from John, who later on in his writing identifies himself as a teacher and tells the people that he's writing to, don't depart from my teaching. John is transparently a teacher. And and notice he doesn't he doesn't warn against false teachers, which is how we would read it, right? We would kind of read our thing. He says, You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need teaching that's not really what what he's saying. At face value, like I said, it it looks like he's warning against any benefit of teaching in general, but he's not. He's not denying the benefits and wisdom of teaching. He's not denying the various degrees of Christian maturity and Christian experience. It's really a whole lot less complicated when we understand the Old Testament illusion that John's pulling from, that he's drawing from. Through all of this... Sorry, I don't like this mess right here. Um, From all of this... Uh, John's reminding the church of a new covenant that has come about. He's reminding the church that there is a new covenant, and he's reminding them of all that this new covenant actually entails. It's pretty exciting. So he's actually drawing from a a prophecy in Jeremiah uh, that that was written. God was speaking to the, the, the Israelites while they were in exile, I mean, and bad things were happening. You can read the verses just ahead of it. We'll be in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34. I mean, just two verses before, I mean, there's, I, I don't, I can't remember exactly, but it's something about like, you know, like their teeth will be crushed and they'll be demolished. Like, but he said, like, okay, and, but after that, he said, there's a new day coming, a new covenant that I'm going to make uh, with them. So I'm going to read uh, verses 31 to 34. This is where John is, is drawn from. and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So when he's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, there's something pretty phenomenal that's, that's happening here. Uh, if, you, if you don't know much about anointing, or what the anointing, anointing was, anointing was pretty much, it was an Old Testament practice. It was a ceremonial practice. And it would happen at the ceremony where new priests and new kings were being inaugurated. They would take this bottle of oil and it would have different spices and different things like that. And they would literally pour the thing over the head. And this just weird's been out to no end. I don't know why. Anytime we talk about anointing with oil, he, I mean, there's just, he's just like, who would, I mean, who would want a, a bottle of olive oil just dumped all over? I mean, at one point in Scripture, it talks about the joy of the oil running down their beard. And he's like, man, it just feels so gross. Uh, but, but it was a huge part of this ceremonial thing. And what it did, it was symbolic. And it symbolized the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit... Like, leading that priest, present with that priest as he, he led the people of God. And, and same thing with kings. It symbolized the power and the presence of the Spirit. It was a part of an inaugural ceremony. And so John here, when he, when he begins and he says, you know what, this anointing that you received, remember this anointing that you received. I mean, it's, they're thinking, man, Jeremiah 31, they're thinking this new covenant. And he's saying, look, you're not under the old covenant. There is a whole new covenant. And it has been inaugurated by the Spirit at Pentecost. And how do we know the new covenant has begun? Because God poured his spirit out at Pentecost. Do you know, I mean, back before we had like certified mail and email and all that kind of stuff, you would have kings who would place their seal on something. Pretty much they would have, you know, their letter or whatever they were going to send, and they would be folded, and they would put wax uh, on, on the seal. And the king, uh, or whoever the the person of authority, would have a ring that would have like an an insignia, insignia on it or whatever. And when it started to dry, the king or whoever would put their ring down in it. And nobody else had this ring. And it would guarantee to whoever received that letter or that message that it was actually from the sender. And so when John talks about, remember, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, there's something beautiful that's happening here corporately. Because the Holy Spirit being sent at Pentecost was that seal, the Bible says. It was the guarantee that the new covenant had begun. Which had tremendous individual implications for these people. So when he says, remember the Holy Spirit's anointing that abides in you, he's telling them that, you know what, you who are in Christ have been anointed by the Spirit as a sign that you belong to him and that you belong to this new covenant promise. Therefore, You are beneficiaries and partakers in the new covenant. The new covenant isn't external. It's not oil dumped on the head. He says, as it abides in you. He didn't just place his law in us. And write it on our hearts, but he placed the Holy Spirit in us. We have been anointed, those of us who are in Christ, with the Holy Spirit, indwelt, reborn, regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not an outside secret knowledge, which the Gnostics would have taught. They would have said there is an external knowledge, there is a higher level of knowledge that you need in order to kind of hit this next level of Christianity. And John is destroying that. He says, no, you've received the Holy Spirit. You don't need an extra level of knowledge. You don't need a priest. You have been made priests. When you received the Spirit, you became a priest of the Most High God through Christ. You don't need an extra level of knowledge to justify you. It's the Spirit that makes known to us through the Scriptures and to our hearts the truth of who Christ is and what he's done and moves us to believe He stirs up faith in us that Christ is our justification. He's saying, look, it's not about what you understand. You didn't become reborn and regenerate by your own understanding. You were reborn by the Spirit of God, and that truth was made known to you, as was revealed by the Spirit to your heart and through through the Scriptures that we've given. I mean, this is a beautiful text that could just easily be misconstrued and misunderstood and the richness and depth of it. I, I usually don't love the idea of preaching, but I, midweek, I was like, Kelly, I am so pumped about this. I love the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, the Old Testament allusion that he's drawn from because I think it's rich. I think it's significant. And I think it's something that, like, that we need to understand. Like, you need to hear the same things that John is saying to the people in Ephesus that he's writing to. So I ask you, do you know that what makes you right before God isn't your knowledge or your understanding, but it's the Holy Spirit who produced in you new life. Jesus says that the what does it say? Do you remember? He says the flesh can only give birth to the flesh. Thus you need the spirit. The spirit is the one that gives birth to the spirit. Not not our own understanding and our own knowledge. So he's saying, Don't be fooled, don't be deceived. There's not an extra level of knowledge that you need. There's not a special guru that you need to be connected with to connect you with God. Because you are partakers in the New Covenant, you can genuinely know God. You can genuinely experience God. You can genuinely know that you actually know God. And it's through the Spirit. I'm going to close uh, with a quote from uh, a pastor uh, named Ray Ortland. Um, he has a really good quote, especially as, as it's relevant for us. He says, Reformed theology is deeply satisfying intellectually. Christianity starts making sense in a thrilling way. But if we stop there, rather than go through the wardrobe into the Narnia of Christ himself, then this great theology stops being thrilling and we become hard, cold, and proud people. Family, Friends, there is truth. Truth that we cannot change. Truth that cannot be manipulated. It requires that we bow to it. And this truth is Jesus. It's not a philosophy, an idea. It is the person of Jesus. And he invites us in. He invites us to experience him, to know him, and to remain in him. And in typical fashion, I'll say that's it. Um as 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 we as we close i'd, I'd really invite you to consider those things Uh, If you if you if you're going man, I don't know that. I mean, by these things, I don't really know that I actually am am a Christian. I don't know that I really believe this core doctrinal truth, or I I don't know that I've had an experience where I've like really truly experienced God. I would invite you in the time that we have of a response to to just hang out where you are for a minute, spend a couple minutes just praying, and say, I mean, if you want to say Jesus, like I do want to know you in a way that I haven't known you, or I I want to know you for the first time, like that that's cool. You should do that. for, for others of us, we're going to come up and we're going to take communion like we do every week. We're going to come up um, through one of the aisles. I don't, I can't even remember which one. It changes sometimes. Are they coming down the sides? Yeah, all right. We're going to come down the sides. And you're going to take the bread, which represents the body of Christ. And you're going to take it and you're going to dip it in the, the, the wine or the juice, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And in so doing, we remember and we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. We proclaim the truth of who Jesus is to one another. So if you're not a believer, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, we'd ask that you not come up and take communion, not because we want to make you feel weird or something, but because we don't want you to come up and say something that you don't actually believe uh, to be true. We don't want you to, to proclaim something that you don't believe. Um, but instead, we'd ask that you'd hang out where you are, really consider uh, God's word, really consider what's been preached, uh, and, and respond as, as the Spirit prompts. Um, There's also a giving basket in the back as we also continue worship through giving our tithes uh, and offerings. So uh, the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us uh, and worship through singing uh, as we take communion. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that what just seems confusing and daunting and overwhelming, uh, Lord, is not uh, that uh you You really have inspired these scriptures they they make absolute uh sense. I uh, thank you for giving us the tools uh resources, but more so the Holy Spirit to make known uh, the truth uh, to our hearts God I pray that um, uh, that you would bless uh, this time of response as we continue uh, to worship that your spirit would move uh, mightily and uh, shaping us uh, into in to more like uh, Christ. I thank you again for your work. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, may you lead the rest of our time. In Jesus' name, amen.